Year 2100 BC, time when the medical profession was born. Obviously, the answer is in the title, but if you want to know details, we are going to discuss them. When I say that we are looking for the first year of the medical profession, I mean the profession as we know it. It's obvious that from the very beginnings people try to cure themselves and their loved ones, but when did the healing become a separate, distinctive profession? And how did it manage to survive in those early days? I mean, if you risk your health and life every time you see a patient, will you really stay in the profession? It's Ed Kenelosh, Laboraverum Sirius. Hi. Medical care itself should be very old, right? But what does old mean in reality? When are the beginnings? What's your guess? Well, as early as in mid-19th century, people knew that medical care was at least 40,000 years old. That's related to the very first found Neanderthal. He was found in the Neanderthal Valley near Dusseldorf, Germany in 1856. Scientists quickly realized that they have found a new, previously unknown biological species of humans. The remains of that very first found Neanderthal showed that during his life he broke his ulna, suffered from meningitis and had many other ailments. And yet, he survived and somehow lived to 40 years old. How? The only explanation is that others took care of him. You remember, we are talking about the time 40,000 years ago. Another Neanderthal, who we call Shanidar I, lived probably 5,000 years before the first found Neanderthal and died at the age of 10 years older than him. The word Shanidar indicates that his remains were found in the cave of Shanidar in northern Iraq. The number one means only that it so happened that he was described in the notes of archaeologists first. A cripple from his early childhood, Shanidar I had a shattered left orbit and was blind in his left eye as a result. He also had an atrophied right arm with something that happened long before his death, possibly amputation or the onset of severe osteomyelitis. His group took care of him for decades, decades, even though he wasn't the most important person among them. All indications are that he was trying to be useful by simply chewing heights for them and watching the fire. Once again, Shanitar I lived some 45,000 years ago. Another Neanderthal from the same cave is probably the first known victim of a murder, most likely the result of a fight between two groups. We call this man Shanidar III. You remember that the name Shanidar means only the place where the remains were found, and the number the third is just a random order in the notes of scientists. Shanidar III also lived 45,000 years ago, but most likely at a different time than Shanidar I, and the two Neanderthals never met. Shanidar III was pierced through the chest with a spear and died two weeks later. He wouldn't have lasted this long if his group hadn't taken care of him. And their care was good, his broken ribs began to heal. Well, for those who think that 45,000 years is not enough, I can offer 60,000 years. It is about the same cave in Iraq, a man who we call Shanidar IV. He was buried in various medicinal flowers. At least, these flowers are medicinal for us. So you can take this as evidence and think about 60,000 years, or you can say it's too coincidental and go back to 45,000 years. Anyway, we are talking about a very, very long time ago. Some medical manipulations of prehistoric people are very impressive, like tooth drilling 14,000 years ago, or skull trepanation 
10,000 years ago. However, this is a medical activity, not medical profession. This activity could be done by relatives and friends, and in more advanced times by shamans and priests. They were not in name, but really priests, shamans, and village sorcerers, and the healing was only an accidental side effect of the rituals they performed. But when did someone first start healing the sick as a primary activity? Did something not related to any rituals? Did it as a profession? Legends say it was a man named Hippias who lived in time immemorial, whatever that means. At least, that's what it says in the legends that we know. Hippias was the son of Apollo. In his early years, he rendered some kindness to a snake, and that snake licked his ears clean and taught him the secret knowledge of the medicinal art. Well, this is in addition to the healing lessons received from his father Apollo and designated mentor Centaur Chiron. Hippias cured Ascals, ruler of Epidorus, who suffered an incurable ailment in his eye. And people started to call Hippias a new name, Asclepius. So, if you heal Ascals, people will call you Asclepius and forget your real name. Quite logical. Asclepius was so good at bringing people back to life from the brink of death and beyond that it caused an excessive abundance of human beings. Therefore, Zeus resorted to, <laughs> you wouldn't believe it, to killing him to maintain balance in the human population. Later, however, upon Apollo's request, Zeus resurrected Asclepius as a god and gave him a place on Olympus. Asclepius was a father to five daughters. Healthiness, recovering, healing, health, and remedy. Or in ancient Greek, Hygieia, Yasso, Assesso, Egli, and Panacea. The rod of Asclepius, a snake entwined staff, remains a symbol of medicine today. After his death, Asclepius became a god and, like any god, had his servants, attendants, or in ancient Greek, therapeute. However, very quickly the word therapy lost its connection with the service to the gods and came to mean simply treatment or healing. Obviously, this is a Greek myth and has nothing to do with reality. Believe it or not, the Greeks associated Asclepius with a real person, an Egyptian who actually lived around 2700 BC. His name was the one who comes in peace, or in ancient Egyptian, Imhotep. He was a chancellor to the pharaoh Djoser, possibly architect to Djoser's step pyramid and high priest of the sun god Ra at Heliopolis. In 3000 years after his death, Imhotep was gradually glorified and deified, so that the Greeks began to think that Imhotep and Asclepius were the same person. But no text during his lifetime mentions his special wisdom or healing powers. Moreover, no text mentions his name at all in the first 1200 years following his death. But even when his name was mentioned for the first time, there was nothing about him as a physician. It wasn't until 2200 years after his death that the first text describing him as a healer was written. It dates back to 350 BC. Back to reality. And what about real people who made medicine their profession? True doctors. In the times preceding the classical era, there were not that many non-religious texts. The earliest known document, which may have mentioned physicians because it was a legal document, is called The Reforms of Urukajina, 2318 BC. Urukajina, 2318 BC. Urukajina was king of two city-states in Mesopotamia, and his reforms is the first known legal document in history. 
But no, there are no physicians in his texts. Or the lines where physicians were mentioned didn't reach us. However, already in the next document that has come down to our time, physicians are mentioned. 200 years after the reform of Urukajina, in 2100 BC, three lines of the code of Ur-Namu, a Sumerian law collection from Mesopotamia, mentioned physicians. Code of Ur-Namu is the oldest known code of laws. Those three lines stated that a doctor must be hired under a contract. Since in the same document there is a separate theological part that deals with affairs of priests, the author of the code really distinguished between doctors and priests, considering them to be representatives of different professions. So the professional physicians definitely existed in 2100 BC. This is the date when the profession was born. Hey, we are celebrating here the year of 2100 BC! Around the same time we also have the oldest known prescription. It was about how to treat food poisoning. A little later the Sumerians wrote 15 more prescriptions. They were kept in one of the oldest libraries in the world, the temple of a sacred city of Nippur. The prescriptions made a very substantial, very concise document. Fifteen prescriptions were squeezed together into 145 lines of cuneiform. The text appears to have been composed for internal use. It contains no spells, incantations, prayers or references to the gods. Only very specific actions required to prepare medicines. The healing ingredients listed there are food products, mustard, thyme, plums, pears, figs, semolina, salt, milk, plants, pine, fir, minerals, petroleum, asphalt, and animal parts, turtle shell, organs of water snake. In the next two documents known to us, there is no mention of doctors. That's Laws of Ashnuna, 1930 BC, and the Code of Lipit Ishtar, 1860 BC. No earlier than 250 years after the code of Urnamu, the physicians are mentioned again, and not anywhere but in the famous Code of Hammurabi, 1755 BC. The Code of Hammurabi sets the minimum fee for a physician at two sickles of silver. Now we pronounce this word as shekels, so two shekels of silver. In those days the word shekel still meant weight, just like our words pound, gram or ounce. As with many ancient units, the variety of shekel weights was quite wide. It could range from 7 to 17 grams. But in the old Babylonian Empire of the 18th century BC, it was most often 8 to 9 grams. So 8 or 9 grams of silver, 2 shekels, how much is it? Converted to silver at the current exchange rate, 2 shekels equals 14 dollars. However, over the past 4000 years silver has greatly depreciated. On the other hand, two shekels of silver could buy 600 liters of barley, or 365 kilograms. At current prices, that's $110. Two shekels is the cost of almost two and a half months of unskilled labor of a free Babylonian. In the conditions of today's Ukraine, for example, it's $435. But even this calculation is inaccurate. In those poor times, grain was valued much higher than today. This amount of barley was eaten, for example, by a free male Babylonian in a year and one month, and it was expected that this amount would last twice as long for a woman. And do not deceive yourself, the Babylonians ate mainly barley. This means that for the minimum payment to the doctor, a family of two people, husband and wife, together would have enough food for nine months. I would say that's a lot. But this was the minimum fee. 
For a successful operation, including the treatment of walleye, the doctor was to receive 10 shekels. Well, if the patient was a full-fledged member of the ancient Babylonian society. If the operation was performed on a foreigner who is not a member of the community, then 5 shekels. If a slave, 2 shekels. For the treatment of a fracture or painful tumor, the fee was 5 shekels, 3 for a foreigner, 2 for a slave. It's also interesting that the doctor was not paid for the treatment as such, only for the success of the treatment. Any payment to the doctor was to some extent a success fee. Apparently, only surgery was recognized as a medical practice in those days. The laws did not consider it necessary to regulate the treatment that didn't involve surgery. So, no fees for treating headaches, stomach ulcers or angina. Sorry. In those days, the word doctor meant surgeon and vice versa. However, for the death or blindness of the patient as a result of the operation, the surgeon was punished by cutting off his fingers. Given what times we are discussing, it meant not only disability, but also a high probability of infectious complications and death. The punishment for the death of a slave was not that severe. The doctor had to buy a replacement slave. If the treatment of a slave's eye resulted in the blindness of that eye, the doctor had to pay half the cost of the slave. All the patient's complaints were heard by the Babylonian king himself. Which is not surprising, because there were probably only two or three doctors in the whole country and their work was very visible. But given all this cruelty, how did the profession survive? The laws left enough loopholes for doctors to thrive. For example, if you treat only uncomplicated fractures in young and otherwise healthy people, you have a good chance for a happy and prosperous life. However, these laws posed a clear obstacle to the development of medical science. Any experiments or any difficult cases exposed the doctor to mortal risk. This is the story of when and how the medical profession began, how it managed to survive, and why it didn't simultaneously give birth to medical science. If you would like to know more, I would recommend to read Babylonian and Assyrian Laws by C.H.W. Jones and Neanderthal Behavior, Diet and Disease by L.S. Weyrich. You can find a more detailed list of references along with the text of this story and many other stories in our Facebook page Labora Verum. That is Labora Verum. Labora Verum, one word. It was Ed Kenelosh. Thank you and goodbye.